This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a segment uh, to give you some really good examples of real people who have faced a debt, big or small, how they did it. And each, that, each example is going to be a little bit different as we look at these case studies. Uh, one of any of them uh, you might be able to resonate with. So let's first start, Blair. Let's talk about what is a consumer proposal. So we've all got that understanding mm-hmm. and then we can move into the into a couple of examples. Oh, sure, Elaine. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about the case studies because that's the most interesting part of my day to day is it's, it's real people. You know, yeah. it's not just debt. It's a family. It's a situation. Uh, it's a bunch of challenges. And then what I'm so pleased about is how well a proposal can fit many of those challenges to get people back on track. So what a consumer proposal is, is it's meant to be a compromise. So it's meant to be to be saying that you owe a bunch of money and we all know if, if you're in my office, typically you're not going to be able to pay that back in full. And in general, people don't want to go into bankruptcy, you know, unless it's absolutely their last resort, if nothing else would work. So a proposal is meant to be an alternative to a bankruptcy where the benefits are you don't go into bankruptcy, you stop all of the interest on the debts, and then we figure out collectively what can you afford to pay back to avoid the bankruptcy. So in most cases, if you pay back about a third to a half of the debt over a period of usually two to four years, you didn't have to go bankrupt, you got a payment that you could afford, and you get your life back. So, you know, in many cases, if someone comes in owing $20,000, they can walk out with a consumer proposal for about a third of that amount with no interest, no harassment, no additional fees. And once it's paid, you're done. Once it's paid, you're done. You move on, you rebuild your credit, and, you know, ideally you don't get into the same situation again. Cool. Well, let's talk Mm -hmm. about some folks that you've had the opportunity to help uh, with uh, using a consumer proposal. Yeah. So the the first situation we we can talk about um, is I deal with, um, you know, a number of folks, some of them owe a ton of money, sometimes a little bit lesser amounts of money, and sometimes people are really hesitant to come in when they don't owe $50,000, when they owe a lot less than that. But it uh, could be crippling at the same time, well, right? Absolutely. Depending on your tolerance level, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, even a small debt that you know that you can't handle, that can just give huge amounts of stress and, you know, hopelessness. If there's people calling you 10 times a day and you've got nothing good to say to them, that can be, you know, pretty debilitating for yourself and your self-worth. Absolutely. So the individual that I worked with, she was a 43-year-old woman, and she had about $9,000 of consumer debts. And what was really critical for her is she had multiple payday loans. And that all happened when she was unemployed for a period of a few months. Okay, so consumer debt is credit cards? Yeah, credit cards, lines of credit. It could be income tax. It could be student loans. Essentially, it's anything where there's not an asset to back it. And what I mean by that is it's not a mortgage or a car loan. In those situations, if you don't pay the mortgage or pay the car, well, you're going to lose the house or lose the car. Got it. So consumer debt is something if you don't pay, they they can't take something from you, but definitely they can make your life difficult. And in this case, uh, my client had $9,000 of debt. A bunch of it was owed to payday loans and the interest and the fees on them, as we started to do the math, it was about 500% annual interest charges wow. on the payday loans. It was just ridiculous. Now, I don't know what a payday loan is. Mm-hmm. What is that? 
Well, it's generally your last resort, so it's very expensive financing. And the way that it started is literally on payday, you know, you'd get your check and you wouldn't be able to cash it. So you'd go to Joe at the mill who had a little bit of money and he'd, he'd loan you a little bit extra. And then when you got your check cashed, you'd pay it back with some extra charges. So that was the concept, you know, very small based amongst a few friends. But now there's franchises everywhere of all different, you know, machinations of cash and money and different things like that. And it's very high cost financing. So you walk in, you know, basically proving your employment and you walk out with a loan. But when you have to pay that loan back, typically on payday, you know, a week or two from now, you're paying back what you borrowed plus big charges. Again, up to 500% annual interest rates in some cases. Okay. So what happens, Elaine, unfortunately, is people get into a cycle that I never see just one payday loan. It's when they're paying back the second, they take out a third. And paying back the third, they take out a fourth. So sometimes there's up up to 10. But uh, back to our situation yes. here. So it was $9,000 of debt. Um, my client had been unemployed for a period of time, but she was now working. And she just wasn't able to keep up on all these payments. And she felt hopeless that everything she's paying is going to interest and she wasn't getting out of debt. Got it. All right. So she came to you mm-hmm. and consumer proposal was the suggestion. Yeah. So definitely at $9,000 of debt, you think long and hard before filing a bankruptcy. You, you could do it, but you know you want to think of every alternative. In this case, we were able to work out that she could afford to make payments of about $200 a month. Okay, so she couldn't afford the, what they were asking, which was multiples of that, but $200 a month of what, is what she could afford. And we figured out under a consumer proposal, if she made that payment for 24 months, that would be enough. The creditors would accept that in full settlement. So her $9,000 debt plus interest was reduced down to just over half, to 4800 She paid it off $200 a month for two years, and she's going to rebuild her credit with no long-term effects. And the key is here is that that's where you guys come in. That's the work that you do is mm-hmm. negotiate that yep. with the creditors and say, this is what's possible. That's exactly it. The only way you can do a consumer proposal is to work through a licensed insolvency trustee like Sands & Associates. And if people are wondering, well, where's the catch? Where's the fees? How do you guys get paid? There is no catch. Um, there are fees, but they're built into the proposal. So if we work out $200 a month is what the individual can pay and two years is a reasonable term, the trustee gets paid out of that. The person doesn't pay anything extra. They don't pay any upfront fees to figure out if this works. And essentially, you know, if you have a deal, you don't need to wait months or years or anything. You know, if you have a deal in the space of about a month and a half. So the law says if we make a proposal to creditors, they have to answer us back within 45 days. So it's not going to be hanging over your head for a long time. You're going to know whether this proposal works and solves the problem. Okay, good. Let's look at the second uh, case study here. Mm-hmm. Also involving a woman. We're mm-hmm. not going to take that personally. Nope. <laughs> she was self-employed uh, and had a pretty significant size debt. Yeah, and we see a lot of self-employed individuals, and it's pretty rare that you find a self-employed individual who doesn't owe tax debt. And part of that is it's so much more difficult when you're your own boss, when you're your own essentially trust account for Canada Revenue Agency, you've got the obligation to pay your taxes rather than having your employer take it off the top and you never miss the money because you never had it. Exactly. A lot of self-employed folks tend to get into trouble with taxes, or at least the folks that I see, um, and sometimes they feel very helpless thinking that there's nothing you can do to reduce tax debt. And that comes from, you know, we get a lot of U.S. news and there is nothing you can do to reduce U.S. tax debt in Canada totally different regime. We can help reduce, consolidate, um, do a consumer proposal to repay the portion of the debt that can be afforded. So in this situation, um, my self-employed client came in and she's owed about $43,000, including a component of tax debt. She was getting some collection calls, you know, no real court actions at this point, but it was a sense that, you know, she wasn't making headway 
employee each month, and she was, you know, scared to file her next year's tax return, wondering if this debt goes up, you know, how am I going to deal with an even bigger debt? So what we did is we sat down, we reviewed all the situation, all the the options of the situation. Uh, we looked at a bankruptcy proceeding pretty seriously because in this case, you know, $43,000 of debt, that's pretty well in the ballpark of what most people would consider filing a bankruptcy for. Um, but in her situation, she was working, she was solidly employed, she knew she had the ability to make monthly payments, and she really wanted to try a consumer proposal to see could she get the benefit of freezing the interest, reducing the amounts, and getting some time to restructure herself without a bankruptcy. Got it. And what did we do? Well, you, yeah, you got it down to a pretty reasonable total that she had to pay uh, per month. Yeah, so so a lot of our, our advertising or our banners, it says cut your debt by up to 70%. And it's not in every case we can achieve a 70% reduction. Sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's higher. In this case, it was almost bang on, almost a 70% reduction in her debt. So it was just a remarkable result. So she walked into our office, the first meeting, very you know ashamed of the situation, feeling a bit hopeless, owing $43,000. By the time we had the consumer consumer proposal filed, she has signed on for monthly payments of $230. So just $230 on $43,000 over a term of 60 months. So bringing the debt down to just over a third of what it was before. Yeah, and taking a, a, a good chunk of time to pay it off, but mm-hmm. a manageable, yeah. a manageable, not only a manageable uh, period of time to do that, but certainly for a, a monthly payment of $230, mm-hmm. that's, that's really terrific. Yeah, as I sit down with clients and we, we calculate the proposal payment, you know, usually I do two things. I say, well, let's figure out what you're paying now on your debts. And it's almost every situation the proposal payment is less than the interest charges on usually just one or two of the debts if there's a bunch of them. So so the payment is so much more affordable, um, you know, that, than most people would an- anticipate. Now, uh, I know that this might be a question that, that folks have in the, back of your, in the back of your mind. Is a consumer proposal something that I could... Uh, do myself. Mm-hmm. And I know what the answer is. Yeah, and the answer is absolutely not, or we wouldn't be doing these shows here. Right. Um, is a proposal, it's a legislated solution. So it's part of federal law, and in order to use federal law, you need to have a trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, to help you with it. So, you know, you can try to informally negotiate with anybody that you owe money to getting all of your creditors to agree to take back a third of the debt with no interest charges and no one's going to bother you over a period of years, usually it's very, very difficult for that to happen. That's why the law exists where a trustee can say, you know, the law determines that this is a better recovery for everybody here. So, you know, I don't even need everybody to agree on a proposal. If you owe five people money and I get at least half of them on board with by dollar value, everyone else is bound by it. That's different than if you had done it on your own and people could opt out. Now, that's interesting. So Mm -hmm. you don't have to have every creditor agree. That's right. Just 50% or, or, and it's not the numbers of people, but it's the dollar value. Just the dollar value. So in in some cases, if someone, you know, owes Canada Revenue Agency money and, you know, CRA for whatever reason didn't want to accept their proposal, as long as they owe MasterCard or Visa a dollar more than CRA and MasterCard or Visa is willing to accept the proposal, the government has to go along for the ride. Wow. So even, and so that really knocks out on the unreasonable factor that you're going to come across. I mean, Mm -hmm. not everybody's going to be jumping on board with this. If you owe me a certain amount of money, I want that money back. That's really good to know. Yeah. And another really important thing, Elaine, is protection. So if you're doing a consumer proposal, you know, most people understand if you file for bankruptcy, nothing can happen to you. Nobody can sue you, harass you. All the calls have to stop. They can't take you to court. You're in bankruptcy. 
Consumer Proposal gives you all of those benefits without a bankruptcy. Fully protected, the time you need to restructure, but not the hit of a bankruptcy. And the support throughout that period of time to repay as well. I mean, there's yeah. other services that Sands and Associates offers. Oh, absolutely. You know, we want to transform the entire person. So part of the proposal is some very in-depth financial counseling that you need to attend with us. It's all included in the proposal. We meet with you at least a couple of times over the term of the proposal to just make sure we've got a long-term solution. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We're talking with Susie Hill from BC Hydro. Uh, for more information about Susie and, of course, Hydro, their website, nice and easy, bchydro.com. So the premise of this segment is we all use BC Hydro resources every day in so many different ways, but our wallets and the environment benefit if we do so thinking Power Smart and using Power Smart. BC Hydro spokesman Susie Hill to talk about residential Power Smart savings and tips. First of all, Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Secondly, Power Smart program, it's been around a long time in British Columbia. Yes, it has. And the simplest thing you can do if you want to start saving right now on your energy bill is to use your My Hydro account. Uh, so it's a completely free online tool you can sign up for. Just create a profile and link to your BC Hydro account to get started. And what it's going to do is it's going to track your behavior right down to the previous day's hour and highlight behaviors you might want to change through identifying peak energy use times. So to how let, let's talk about all the different things that we use in a home and does it monitor all of those? Because I'm thinking about heat. I'm thinking about electricity for my, um, I guess if we have electric uh, heat, that would be monitored. Uh, our hot water tanks, that would be monitored. Those kinds of things. What, what are all the pieces that we can sort of put in on the uh, website? Yeah, everything you can think of is tracked on my hydro account. One of the appliances that uses the most electricity in your household actually is the refrigerator. They're very energy consuming. So something you can do is replace an old fridge and it'll save you more than $40 a year on electricity costs. Appliances count for about 20% of a household's electricity use. And does that include your television sets? Yes, absolutely. So something that BC Hydro does regularly is offers uh, appliance rebates with competing uh, uh, retailers, and we offer up to $300 on energy-efficient appliances. Hmm. Okay. Wow, and is there a lot of, of take-up on those, on those programs? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. And another thing we do is offer rebates uh, regularly on residential lighting. Uh, it can account for 15% of a household's electricity use, and uh, turning off unnecessary lights is a great place to start for savings. I remember my dad telling me as a kid, you know, turn off the lights, I'm not made of money. And I, <laughs> I, never, I never really understood until I was out on my own how much these things can add up. Uh, for instance, uh, two 100-watt incandescent bulbs switched off for an average of two hours per day could save you just 12 bucks over a year, and that really adds up over time. Mm -hmm. And making the switch to Energy Star LED bulbs that use at least 75% less energy than incandescent lighting is also a great way to go to save. 
And it's it's interesting, too, just talking about lighting for a second, the technology and how far it's come when it comes to LEDs. Uh, in Originally, it was a pretty, it could be a pretty harsh light, but nowadays, the options are enormous for the kinds of LEDs and the kinds of lightness or light, you know, bright or with some color involved. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. Absolutely. And the price of LEDs has gone down significantly. It's really easy to just go to the store and get a bulb for $5 and under. Uh, and also, as mentioned previously, we do offer rebates on energy efficient lighting regularly. And um, that's a great place to start to save money in the long term. The whole smart technology, too. I mean, you talk about smart uh, power smart programs, but uh, smart appliances. That's right. got to make a big fa- uh, be a big factor, too, in, in saving those dollars towards energy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you invest in some of these um, smart air conditioners and air pumps, you can save up to 10% on your heating and cooling costs per year. Um, other little things you can do that are absolutely free and that you can implement right now, take shorter showers. Um, hot water is expensive. If two people in your home cut their shower time by a minute each, you could save 30 bucks over a year. Have you guys figured out or have any stats on the difference between the um, uh, on-demand hot water and the regular uh, hot water tanks? Um, I can't speak to that, but I can definitely send you that information later. Yeah, I'm just interested because I know... uh, being a boater, mm-hmm. we uh, come across both kinds, right? Some, right. some boats have the uh, hot water tanks, the regular hot water tanks. And then, depending on the size of your craft, you can do the uh, hot water on demand, especially even for cottages or, you know, different applications. Absolutely. Yeah, I could send you those stats later for sure. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Susie, I'm wondering, you know, for for homeowners, are there things, um, you know, that they could do themselves, different projects um, that might increase their ability to save power, save energy? What are some of the, you know, the little, you know, little investment, but big return types of thing a homeowner might consider doing? So something very simple and relatively inexpensive is draft proofing your home. So sealing up your doors, windows and outlets using weather stripping or insulators. Um, just a few minutes spent draft proofing can leave up to $100 in savings per year, and that's huge. Right. Another thing you can do is insulate your windows. Energy-efficient window treatments, they can insulate the airspace on the inside of your windows, cutting energy costs up to 20%. And there's even fabrics that you can get these days for curtains or drapes uh, that will help keep the, uh, keep the cold out or keep the, the warmth in, depending on how you're looking at it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another thing you can do is um, just fixing a leaky faucet. Hot water leak in your faucet can save you up to $33 a year in energy costs. And also installing water-saving shower heads and tap aerators. Uh, installing a high-efficiency aerator in your kitchen sink could save you 28 bucks per year in hot water costs. And these are relatively inexpensive to be found at any local hardware store. I know it's hard living in British Columbia when we get so much rain, especially on the south coast yeah. in the winter and uh, or snow or depending on where you are, what it is, uh, thinking that, um, you know, we need to we need to think about those resources and uh, the amount of effort that it takes to use them on a regular basis. You know, like a hot water tank or even just the leaky faucet. It's uh, it's not a bad thing to think about if you haven't if you haven't done that yet in your home. 
Yeah, and these are relatively easy things that you can do, and you can do them yourself. I have. I actually <laughs> fixed my toilet <laughs> four days ago on my own. I was very proud of that. <laughs> wow, you saved yourself some money there. <laughs> I did. Yeah. How did you yeah. do it, Susie? Where did you go for the information? Well, I uh, I just Googled it, and uh, I was able to – it was actually the um, – Oh, I forget what the mechanism is called. The, the actual flusher was broken. Um, it had broken in half, and I went and fixed it on my own. I was very proud, and then I realized, hey, I could do a lot of these things on my own. <laughs> well, and YouTube is amazing these days. Yeah, What's available? Exactly. Yeah, and we have a lot um, a lot of do-it-yourself videos uh, at bchydro.com slash powersmart. You can learn how to do pretty much anything on your own at powersmart.ca. One of the things that we did this year in our home is we put in uh, basically a smart uh, thermostat. Oh, right. oh, smart. The we, Nest. Yeah. Yep. The ne- yeah. Yep. And, uh, and we've been in and out of town quite a bit, coming uh, back and forth from Vancouver Island. And uh, what we found was, I mean, first of all, depending on the thermostat, sometimes they're just super easy to program. If you're a pretty regular person, you can do it uh, by the hour or by the time of day. Uh, but what we found with this particular one is that we could be on the ferry coming home and decide instead of walking into now this doesn't sound like it's going to uh save you know save resources but we could start our furnace before we got Mm -hmm. home so the home was already warm when we walked in the door now it sounds like a luxury but i tell you i'm one of those impatient people Susie. (laughs) i like walking in the house and Mm -hmm. if it's cold i am like turning up the furnace to you know whatever uh, 25 degrees and of course i get the comments you know just because you've turned it up to 25 doesn't mean it's going to get there any faster (laughs) if you just put it at 18 to start with Uh, yeah 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 but i love that the smart technology certainly helps at night as well Mm -hmm. because you know at 11 o'clock it's going down and then six in the morning or seven in the morning it's going to come on and there's not this sort of wild fluctuation on the thermostat yeah, it's amazing what you can do with technology, and I consider my hydro to be that sort of technology because you can actually look down to the hour at what you're using and how you're using it. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a great resource. Yeah, and Susie, the hydro rates, they vary by time of day. Is that, is that right? So if you shift some of your usage to off hours, you'd see some savings? Um, you know, I'm not sure about that. I'd okay. have to get back to you on that. Just say but, yes, uh, Susie, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I can explain uh, yeah. how electricity is used and measured for billing. Yeah, that'd be great. So uh, electricity use is it's the pace at which you use electricity multiplied by the time it's used for. So you're billed for each kilowatt hour that you use. Uh, for example, a 100-watt light bulb left on for 10 hours would use 1,000-watt hours of electricity. Mm-hmm. I know this sounds complicated. <laughs> I almost lost myself there, but uh, that's why we offer these very simple free tracking tools to allow you to view your detailed electricity use by the month, week, day, or even hour. Um, and having this detailed information at hand helps you understand how your daily habits affect your electricity use and ultimately your bill. And that way you can look at opportunities to save. For instance, um, I decided I would try hanging my laundry to dry one day as opposed to using the dryer as I normally do. And it was a huge savings in energy. And um, so I've done that more regularly now. 
That's very good. Good thinking. I hadn't thought about the dryer. I hadn't thought about that at all. Susie, we've been talking with Susie Hill from BC Hydro, all about ways that you can save money and conserve energy in your home and as you go about your day. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Flair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. So after eight years as a mortgage break, uh, broker, Richard Moxley had enough of watching average Joe pay thousands in excess fees and rate, uh, rates and fees, all because no one had taught them the rules of credit. And that's what we're going to talk to Richard about. He authored a book called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit, which sounds like a great idea, Richard, especially these days. Yeah. Uh, as well, he's the founder and lead creditor mentor of eCredit Fix. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. Thank you for having me. So I know one of the things that you're uh, super knowledgeable about are, uh, let's call them sort of the insider secrets. What are the things that we need to know about um, our credit rating and how to keep it and how to improve it? Yeah, so I, I see credit as a game, and unfortunately, not many Canadians know the rules of the game, and so we assume, make a lot of assumptions, but uh, unfortunately, those, those rules, I mean, even the bankers and, and people in finance don't really know what they are, uh, so that's my passion, is helping people understand the rules of the game so you can play the game to win. Well, let's start right there then. Let's talk about the basics uh, when it comes to credit and credit scores. Let's talk about what is a credit score to start off. You bet. So the credit score, just think of it as a, a risk score or a, a grade that is designed to tell potential banks or lenders what's the chance of them getting their money back. And so that that's, that score that uh, is with Equifax or TransUnion, which are the two credit reporting agencies in Canada, and they are the ones who generate this credit score that are used by different banks and lenders. And, and Richard, that that score—it's a—it's a number, is it? Is there a certain range? You know, good, bad, perfect, things like that. Yeah, you bet. So the the score goes between three hundred and nine hundred, and the higher it is, the better. And they would say that you know six hundred is is just okay, or they they give different ratings to that or names to each kind of number category. But in the gist of it, anything over seven hundred is where you want to be. And where does the number come from, Richard? How does that how does that even get created? So it's created by the information that's sent from the banks and and credit cards and different uh, information that is that the banks and lenders have on you, and it's submitted off to Equifax and TransUnion, and then that generates the score. So it, it's generated by your history, your credit history. And, and Richard, if someone is, you know, going to pull a credit report, look at their credit score, you know, what types of things show up on, on a report like that? Is it every debt? Is it government debt? Are there things that are included or excluded in, in a credit score or credit report? 
So I break this up into three groups. So the first group is one or debt that doesn't show up and doesn't affect the credit score at all. And that would be CRA, utilities, rent, uh, even some of the small credit unions or small lending institutions don't report. Um, wow. So, so even if you've got a debt to, to CRA, like a, a student loan or something like that, is that not going to be something that will impact on your credit score? So that's actually the next category. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah. So the, the next category is, is ones that don't show up, or sorry, that do show up, but don't affect the score. So okay. that, that's actually where student loans fall in. And then the last cat group is ones that show up and affect the credit score, which would be the credit cards, lines of credit, loans, and, and now mortgages. Uh, so that's a recent change, but now mortgages do affect the credit score. Hmm. So can, can you tell me about that recent change? They didn't used to in the past, but now a mortgage will either help or hurt your, your rating? Yeah, most Canadians would assume that the, the most uh, important bill would be mortgages, and, and I wouldn't disagree with you, but for the longest time, the mortgages were not reporting or affecting the credit score. They were showing up on some versions of the credit report, but it wasn't affecting the score. But that is a change that's happened in the last couple of years with Equifax, that now it is affecting the credit score, uh, So, uh, which is actually good news for most Canadians because most Canadians pay their mortgage on time, and, and that's probably their, their best paying bill. And so most Canadians' credit scores have jumped up because of that change. Oh, see, that's interesting. I, I would have, I was thinking, well, maybe that wasn't a good thing, but in fact, it sounds like it's a really good thing that the mortgage shows up. Yeah, it, it does. Um, and, and unless, of course, you've made a mistake or, or there's been an error with that, but uh, for the majority of Canadians, it is a good thing. So those, those are debts that most people kind of think about when talking about debt, but um, in all groups, Keep in mind that regardless of whether it shows up or not, even if it's someone you owe money, let's say a, a, a contractor that you've had to come and do some renovations or something like that, any debt that you don't pay, even if it doesn't sh- initially show up on the credit report, can show up on your credit report if they take it to a, a judgment or, or take it to court or collections or something like that. So, so just pausing there for a second, Richard. So if we have, you know, a commercial dispute or, or something like that to a debt that wouldn't report on a credit bureau, but then that person gets a collection agent involved, suddenly that can have an impact on my credit scores. Is that correct? You bet. So wow. the, the key with that is uh, don't put your head in the sand or mm-hmm. don't ignore things. Uh, if, if something's come up, you, get, you should fight it um, and, and be aware of it and, and deal with it. Otherwise, it will show up on your credit report. Right, and I can absolutely attest to that as, as a trustee. If there's a court action against you and you don't show up, quite often the court will just give whatever is being asked against you. They'll give a default judgment, and it's very difficult to overturn something once, it, once it's made. So I think that that's very good advice, Richard. Um, just focusing on the credit score and credit report, just wondering what are some of the things that can lower your score that, that might be surprising? Because I've got to think people understand if you're missing payments, you know, if you're constantly over your limit, you know, you're bouncing checks or things like that, probably that's not good for your credit score. But are there others that maybe people don't know about? Yeah, so one of the first things is wrong information. And I, I know that may sound like, okay, common sense, but uh, unfortunately people have a lot of misinformation on their credit reports uh, as people that regardless of whether they pay their bills on time or not if you have another john smith in canada 
his information could be showing up on your credit report and you could be judged according to that. And that surprises a lot of people of how much other people's information can actually show up on your credit report. And I know Blair can speak to that, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you talked yeah. about that. You've talked about that before. Yeah, absolutely. Credit reports, from what I've seen, they're riddled with inaccuracies quite often. I pull mine at least once a year, and I find wonderful addresses I've never been associated with, employers I've never worked for, and I don't have the most common of names, Blair. So you can imagine if, you know, the, the John Smiths of the world, yeah, there's so many different pieces of information across so many different people that it's, yeah, probably more often than not, there are inaccuracies. And Richard, what's your advice if you, if you get your credit report and you see that there's something that's not accurate there. So there's two ways of dealing with it. You can go and talk with Equifax and TransUnion yourself. Uh, It is generally a longer process, so that's why you want to be proactive and do it early as opposed to waiting until you get declined by a bank or lender when you're already bought the house or Mm -hmm. already sold yourself on something. It's good to do it, like you said, once every year or so so that you can know ahead of time to get that taken care of because it, it can take months or even a year or so to, to get it corrected. Even uh, just silly inaccuracies or the wrong name, as Blair talked about? You bet. Yeah, okay. it, it can throw a wrench in things, and um, and it can take a while to get corrected. Um, now, if they do, if listeners or Canadians in general have issues with that and need help, that's why I left the mortgage side of things to focus on credit full-time. And that's what I do full day or full time is removing errors and fraud off credit reports. And I'm guessing you're you're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot. There's a lot of that. Are are there other things, Richard? So obviously inaccuracies are you know something that can lower your score that might be surprising. Any other things folks should watch out for as as pitfalls? A big one is not having credit, which mm. surprises a lot of people. Um, we not in this day and age as much, or I guess it's getting less and less popular, but. Uh, those that are from a, an earlier generation, they don't even want to have credit. Um, and so when they go and get declined, even though they pay their bills on time and, and they're good on their payment history, if they don't have any credit cards or loans or, or something current that is showing up, that will leave them with a very low credit score and a lot of times have them auto-declined. Mm-hmm. And that's very surprising for them. That's such an interesting uh, point to make, too. I I can remember I had two people in my life who were telling me the completely opposite things about a credit card. Uh, My father, dearly departed, said, uh, you don't need a credit card. Pay cash. This is the way it is. This is the way the world goes. You don't want to get into that situation. And then I had someone else very close to me say, oh, no, you need to get a credit card and start establishing credit so that if comes a time that you need something or you want to buy something, they can look at it and go, oh, you've paid, you're very good with all your credit card bills, you've paid them off uh, very timely or, you know, whatever the situation is. Uh, and that was kind of funny. I had to I had to sort of pick between the two. Who am I going to go with on this? Yeah. yeah, if cash is king, then credit is queen. And we all know <laughs> who's in charge. <laughs> oh, Richard, I like you even more. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's a that's a real that's a really good uh, that's a good thing to remember when it comes to credit. Now, I guess the opposite side is uh, having too much, and then not being able to keep up with those payments if you do establish credit in a, in a couple of different places. Yeah, you bet. Every everything in moderation. 
um, for, for sure. Excellent. We've been talking with uh, Richard Moxley, who's a mortgage bro- who had been a mortgage broker and is now completely dedicated to looking, helping you look after your credit. Uh, Richard has authored the book called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. You're welcome. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Now, we're talking about sort of frequently asked questions, and one of them that that seems to come up for you a lot at Sands & Associates, Blair, is talking about secured debts. Let's let's talk about that, what it is, what's the difference, and and how it works. Certainly. So, yeah, this is something that, um, you know, it's a pretty core uh, basic understanding about debt, but still um, it's important that that we have it out there. So what a secured debt is, is secured means that there's some security there that if you don't pay the debt, they're going to take something from you. So So that would be my car. Exactly. House. Your house. It could be, you know, a piece of equipment if you're in a business. Um, It could be, you know, a farm implement. Essentially, anything that you've given security over. So even what some people do is they go to, you know, City Financial, for example, and they get a loan and they they give security over all of their household goods. Mm -hmm. That would mean if they don't pay that loan, well, this lender could potentially come and take their household goods. So you can give security over any type of an asset, but the most common ones are over your mortgage, your house, and your car, your car loan. Okay, so it sounds like a good thing from a from a a, a lender's point of view. Exactly. But yeah. do I have to do that if I'm wanting, if I'm needing the money, or if I'm needing the loan? Like, is for the most part, yes. Okay. So for the most part, if you want to get someone to loan you money, you know, to buy a house or or to buy a car, they're not going to do that unless you give them some, you know, again, security or an agreement that if you don't pay, they've got some recourse. They can go and get the car sold or get the, the house sold out, out from under you here. And we'll talk about those remedies, but that's totally different than an unsecured debt. Okay. An unsecured debt is something like a MasterCard debt, Visa, Amex, income tax, student loans. That's something if you don't pay, you know, it's not pleasurable. They're going to call you, they're going to harass you, they're going to do a bunch of things, but there's nothing they can really take from you without taking action against you first, going to court, trying to seize things. If it's a secured debt, if you don't pay, they've got the right to come and seize the asset. Now, I did just have a thought when you were talking about the secured, if you're going after a secured debt uh, for something, you're wanting to buy something, a house or a car, and the lender doesn't offer you that, Mm -hmm. then I would then think, okay, I need to investigate the lender a little bit because if they're just going to give me this money and there's some, you know, there's no backing to them, then what at the end of the day are they actually, you know, going to take if I don't pay up? Oh yeah. That sounds like a scam six ways to Sunday. And I've I've seen that in in the past where, you know, people will, you know, say, oh, this sweetheart financing deal and you can't believe, oh yeah, they're not going to take security or whatever. But what it is at the end of the day is they're going to charge you a bunch of application fees. They're going to charge you, oh, a credit report fee and this fee and that 
that fee. So at the end of the day, you might have paid them hundreds or even thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, nobody on God's green earth is going to advance you money against your house without taking security. Right. So the money's not going to be there at the end of the day with no security interest, but you might have paid a bunch of money thinking that it's going to come through in the end. So it's basically buyer beware. For the most part, if you're buying an asset and you don't have the money up front, so let's be clear, if you're going to buy a car for cash or a house for cash, you're not going to be giving security to anybody on those because you don't owe money. But if you have to borrow the money for the asset, then security is what's going to be taken out. Okay, so something to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So next question, can a secured debt be dealt with under what we talk a lot about on this show, the consumer proposal, or in the case if you're entering personal bankruptcy? How does that work? Yeah, so absolutely yes is the answer. Um, but let's let's back up a, a second first sure. and say, you know, what happens just if you don't pay a secured okay, debt? Okay, fair I enough. Think that's interesting too, because in some cases, you know, if you don't pay the secured debt, they're going to come and take the security and that might be the end of it. You actually don't need a bankruptcy or, or a proposal. Right. But let's talk through an example of, of a car loan. Because okay. um, I was quite surprised when I moved to BC. There's some very specific provincial legislation that um, essentially protect consumers if you financed a car. Oh. So yeah. So let, let's consider. You know, we we financed a car, and it's a, about a year later, and we realized that you know what, we we can't make the payments on this car. Something's happened. We lost a job, or someone got sick, um, and the challenge is, you know, the car is now a year or two old. We know the car depreciated thirty percent when we drove it off the lot. Probably another thirty percent the next year after. So so by definition, a car loan, you're essentially underwater for almost the whole time. Got it. And what I mean by underwater is if you sell the asset, it's not going to be enough to pay off the debt. Yeah, it's never going to be the amount of money that you paid for it. That's right. Ever with a car, because right? It, it maybe towards the end, maybe, you know, a month 82 out of 84, you could sell, you know, you could sell yeah. the car and, and pay off the debt there. I'm not sure. But for the most part, you're going to be considered what's called underwater. Okay. So what happens if, if you can't make the payments? Well... So first off, they're going to call you and they're going to say, okay, you know, maybe we didn't get your payment this month. And you'll say to them, well, actually I did that on purpose. I'm not able to make these payments. What's going to happen then is essentially your lenders have an option of either seizing the vehicle from you or suing you for the difference. Okay. And they're two different remedies. Now, if they seize the vehicle from you, this is actually the best possible thing that could happen. Really? You're surprised, right? I am. Because what that means, and BC is one of the only provinces like this, if we were sitting in Ontario and we've got a car we owe $40,000 on and it's seized and it's sold for $20,000, in Ontario, you're getting a bill for $20,000. You got to pay that difference. Okay. In BC, you're done. You're not getting a bill really? for that difference. It's seize or sue. If they decide to seize the vehicle from you, now obviously get your own legal advice or some you know particularities sure, sure. about this, yeah. but if they decide to seize the vehicle from you, they're not able to come back to you for the shortfall. If that vehicle sells at a shortfall for auction, you're fine. You're, the shortfall is not pinned on you. That's very important for consumers to know. If they're underwater on a vehicle loan, the worst thing they can typically do is sell it off, take the loss, and then try to pay off the difference. They're better in having it seized by the creditor. Okay, that you, you've lost money. You've lost that. You've lost the money that you've put into the car. Mm -hmm. But like you said, that's it. Yeah, you don't have to lose you don't anymore. Have to pay again. And I see people in my office. You know, sometimes they owe sixty thousand dollars on a wow. very basic Kia car, and I can see what's happened is every time they've negotiated negative equity. They've rolled in what they were already underwater on one loan into another loan into another. And as soon as I explain to them how seize or sue works, usually the answer there is stop making the payments, give the car back to the lender, um, and then, you know, get your own financing for another vehicle. Okay. Now in 
full disclosure, there is the option. The lender could say, you know what? We're not going to seize this car. We're actually going to sue you for full payment on the loan. Got it. They have the right to do that. And depending on, you know, your profile, they may choose to do so. I've never in 10 years of practice seen them not seize the car. Okay. So in almost every case that I've seen, they seize the car, but there is still a little bit of risk and that's why you'd want to get some some legal help there. Okay. So now can we go to the question, Certainly. how do those secured debts be, uh, how do they g- get dealt with under the uh, consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy? Right. And now I'm, I'm happy we, we got to here because now this let's assume that we actually want to keep the car. We want to keep the car or we want to keep our house. And those are huge fears people have when they walk into our office and they're considering a bankruptcy or a proposal. Usually a question number two is, am I going to lose my house? And question number three is, am I going to lose my car? Right. Right. What happens when you go through a bankruptcy or a proposal is in most cases, those assets are left untouched. They're actually intact at the end of the day. So if you've got a vehicle loan, what we look at, if you file for bankruptcy or do a consumer proposal, we look at, do you have equity in that vehicle loan? Is there some value there? If you were to sell the car that you would get something back? We've just talked about in almost every case, there's negative equity in a vehicle loan. So what a bankruptcy or a proposal does is it gives you the option. If you decide, okay, you know what? I don't want to be in this, in this financing anymore. At the same time, you're doing a bankruptcy or a proposal. You could get rid of the car, get a new car, and then basically start to move forward, having everything restructured. So it's your option, but it's not a requirement. You could decide that you're going to keep that exact car. Just keep making the payments all the way through. Nothing has to be disrupted strictly because you filed a bankruptcy or a proposal. Because people tend to keep cars because they need them. They've got to get, they don't want to lose that job. They've got to drive from A to B and the car is the thing that's going to get them there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even if you had a car that there was no loan against and you filed a bankruptcy, you're still allowed to keep it as long as it's a reasonably valued car. You can't keep a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, but if it's, you know, a reasonably valued car that you need to get to work, um, the trustee would have no issue with you retaining that. Or you've got a family and they need to get wherever they need to get to as well. Yeah. Okay, let's continue on then. Mm-hmm. So next question, is it, and look at our time, mm-hmm. is it possible to carry on with these arrangements under the consumer proposal or per- personal bankruptcy? Yeah, let, let's talk about a mortgage example, sure. right? Because again, if people are very worried about their car, you can imagine how, to, how you know, doubly, triply worried they would be about their mortgage. You know, yeah. it's clearly, it's where the family lives and, and so on and so forth. And, and, you know, quite often, if you had to sell a house now in the lower mainland, you know, you might be happy with the price, but where are you going to buy and where, where exactly. are you going to go? So with a mortgage, it's very very similar to a bankruptcy or or, or very similar to a car loan. We have to look at what's the equity. If someone is sitting there with a million dollars of equity in their house, yeah, they can't go into bankruptcy and keep a million dollars of equity in the house unless all of that goes to pay their debt. For the most part, people are usually very mortgaged up almost to what the house is worth. They just continue to make the mortgage payments each month while they're in bankruptcy or in a proposal. Quite often, they're in a much better position to make those mortgage payments because we're able to restructure all of the other debts, all the unsecured debts we can restructure and bring down so they can actually afford to make the secured debts, to make the mortgage payment, to make the car loan payment each day. So if any of this information resonates with you and and you think, yeah, this is the help that I need, sands-trustee.com is the website to talk to Blair and his staff, or you can call 1-800-661-3030 to book a free consultation. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.